Hi folks, it's Cian here. You're listening, of course, to White Atlantic Weird, the Irish 14 show that's critical but not cynical. And I'm coming to you as usual from the Cabin in the Woods, which is located at the moment in the sunny southeast of Ireland. And I won't be more specific than that. Now, you find me uh, getting ready for my Halloween episode. And I will say, I think out of all of the different things I cover, ghost stories are perhaps my least commonly tackled subject. I I tend to be more comfortable with cryptozoology. I tend to be more comfortable with ufology and and kind of classic uh, UFO encounters and and monster stories from years gone by. Ghost stories, they kind of have to be a special kind. I will admit that I I am more interested in the ones that I found fascinating as a kid or ones that you get from those old musty books from the 70s and that I still pick up whenever I can. And so it kind of has to be a very special and certain kind of ghost story to catch my attention. Having said that, I do have a a reasonable collection of books about ghost stories and I've, I don't know, something, something, a fancy crept into my head this month, uh, appropriately enough, I suppose, for October and I've been digging out those books and kind of thinking about some old ghost stories that I haven't really thought about in a very long time and I thought for Halloween we might uh, take one out and give it an airing and of course the person I've asked to come on to the show for this chat is none other than my friend Lisa Grimm from the Beer Ladies podcast who knows a lot about many things including the history of beer, archaeology and uh, she has a, a sort of a ghost story book collection that I am more than a little bit envious of. Uh, in this episode we are talking about the story of Patience Worth. This is a US ghost story from the early 20th century and it involves a little bit of spiritualism or pseudo-spiritualism, a little bit of channeling, a little bit of alternative personalities coming through, that sort of thing. My drink for this episode is not a beer because I'm feeling ever so slightly under the I'm feeling ever so slightly under the weather, so I'm just drinking tea. It is Lion's Tea for those of you out there who are brand conscious. And uh, before we get into the show, I'm just gonna sit down here amidst the piles of ghost books that I've got here in the cabin and I'll just let you know of course as usual over on Twitter I am at Strange Ireland you can say hello there over on Instagram I am I've actually gone back to my old name of white underscore Atlantic underscore weird you can say hello either of those in fact if you're interested in wildlife pictures and particular fungi pictures at the moment is what my Instagram mostly consists of because on weekends I've been out rambling and going up hills and into forests and looking for fungus pictures and we're at the height of that period right now and I'm probably at the height of my fungi mania, my yearly fungi mania. So if you're interested in that stuff, do take a look over on Instagram and as always if you want to help the show out, you can do so at buymeacoffee.com forward slash wide atlantic and send some coffee my way so I don't just have to drink tea. Okay, I'm going to leave it at that. Uh, and when we return after the opening, you're going to hear my chat all about the story of Patience Worth with Lisa Grimm. Hope you enjoy it. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. So we, yeah, Lisa, we'll we'll get started. We this is something we planned uh, several months ago. I was lucky enough to have the time to go up to Dublin and and meet up for lunch and and a, and a beer, and we we have made this plan. And I know that this was a topic that you had a lot of information about, and I know you have a personal connection to some of the locations involved, and um 
also I know that you are someone who is a, a, a fantastic collector of ghost stories and ghost books. And I, I actually, actually, I've been listening to your episode with the Abe Books podcast from 2018. Oh, yes where you talk about your your ghost book collection and I'll, I'll put a link to that in the notes I think people will be interested in that too so th that was a lot of fun yeah absolutely so uh, I'll give a little bit of background on this story because it, it is a bit of a strange one so uh, I'll start off with the connection first so I'm originally from St. Louis Missouri in in the states it's it's a very odd place in a lot of ways I won't delve too much into that because they don't quite directly relate to the story but uh, there are kind of, to my mind, three big ghost stories or spooky stories associated with St. Louis that I think the wider world might be aware of to, to some extent. So uh, the biggest one, the kind of um, granddaddy of all of them, if you like, is the exorcist story. So obviously that has been plenty spoken of elsewhere uh, because the, the the boy at the center of the uh, so-called events was, was treated at one of the hospitals there and various local priests were involved. So that's one reason why the exorcist is associated with St. Louis. Uh, the second one is around the Lemp family and the haunted Lemp mansion. Um, and again, that's also interesting to me because there's a lot of brewing history involved, other things that I've written about elsewhere and, and can certainly talk a lot about. But to me, this one, the case of Patience Worth is perhaps the most interesting because there's so many different layers to it. Uh, it says a lot about society at the time, but it's, it's also, uh, one of these cases that it's hard to sort of really figure out what's actually going on and very broadly speaking it's a case of automatic writing or someone if you like channeling patients worth and we'll talk a little bit more about who patients might be but i think it's it's just um a story that should be more more well known it was huge at the time in the, in the press and at the time is sort of the 19 teens through the 1920s broadly speaking but it's a fascinating story to me, it says so much about kind of the, the role of women in this era, what they can and can't, if you like, get away with. Uh, but it's also one that there are still some real questions about, some of them perhaps more uh, spectral, if you like, than others. But there are also some parts of the story that I think uh, have been neglected by some of the ways it is told in, in the, uh, the, the wider world, if you like, because it actually kind of gets weirder in a lot of ways after the, the sort of initial publicity dies away. So. Long story short, um, I'm here to talk about Patience Worth, whether or not she was a real uh, spirit, if you like, channeled by Pearl Curran, who, um, again, is kind of the, the woman at the center of this, or what else we might be dealing with here. So that's a very broadly uh, how, where we're starting. Wonderful. Very briefly, Lisa, um, I'll just mention that you spoke with us last on the topic of T.C. Lethbridge. So I think Indeed. I think. Listeners who might be interested in in other similar stories, that that's what we talked about last time. And actually, um, that was a popular episode. I've seen it be recommended oh, several times online. <laughs> yeah, which is lovely. And, and that so that T.C. Lethbridge, of course, was a sort of mid 20th century eccentric archaeologist, shall we say, in England, who had strange ideas about um, chalk figures in the English landscape. And there's a little bit of spooky archaeology in there to use um uh, to use uh, Jeb Card's uh, term. But um, Lisa, how how do you describe yourself for your your background? Um, before we get into the story proper, how do you yeah, present yourself? So for... it, it is a tricky one because I'm, I'm originally from St. Louis, as I said, but I, I, I got out, uh, if you like, um, for, for college uh, and uh, studied archaeology, as I know we, we talked about before, uh, both in the U.S. and then moved to the U.K., uh, lived in various different parts of, of the U.K. For, for a number of years. Where again, I've always been collecting my ghost stories everywhere I've gone. Uh, went back to the U.S., worked in tech for a long time, still work in tech, but now here, here I am in Ireland. So 
I'm definitely, a, I'd say, kind of an inveterate collector of ghost stories. I'm always looking for, um, you know, anything to do with kind of high strangeness, uh, especially if there is kind of um, almost a literary bent, if you like. But I'm, I'm always uh, searching for the ones that are labeled as, if you like, true ghost stories uh, to just kind of unpick what, what what's really going on here. Um, and I think one of the things I, I love about your podcast especially is that that sort of critical but not cynical, because as, as I'll talk about a little as we get into some of the details of this case, uh, a, a lot of times the, the critiques of this story really go overboard into some of the, the cynical, and I think that actually obscures a lot of the other interesting elements of the story. And it's, it's worth taking a step back to, to kind of you know, see what, what else is going on here. We can still be critical of what's going on, but maybe in a, a kinder way, if you like. Yeah, I do. I do find it interesting how sometimes with these stories, the the t takes that the skeptics came out with at the time. Now we look back at them and say well, those were wildly off base, and right. some of them like are almost as ridiculous as the paranormal explanation. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. I I look forward to this. So let let's set the scene a little bit. What uh, era are we talking about? Uh, and in this part of the American Midwest, like what is the position of, let's say, spiritualism or um, the supernatural involving ghosts? You know, what what is the setting in which this story appears? Yeah, to, and to me, that's one of the really interesting things is this almost sort of falls in between your kind of two peaks of spiritualism, uh, if you like, in the U.S. But wh where we're starting is uh, Pearl Curran, before she marries uh, Mr. Curran, of course, is, is born in Mound City, Mound City, Illinois in 1883. Mound City is um, very much kind of a, I, I don't think it would be wrong to say, a, a bit of a backwater in the Midwest. It, uh, it's on the Ohio River, so uh, it, it, and it would be called Mound City because uh, that whole region, uh, really, you know, everything in kind of the Mississippi and Ohio valleys would have been covered at the time, uh, really up to that time too, with mounds left over from the Mississippian culture. Um, and I, I'm sure archaeologists who study that particular culture would, would have a better name for it maybe now or, or something a bit more precise. But long story short, this would have been, um, you know, still quite a rural area in a lot of ways. You would have had these mounds in the background, but they were certainly being uh, leveled uh, all across the Midwest to build towns uh, as industrialization you know, continues. Um, but, you know, Young Pearl has kind of bounced around different, um, different parts of the Midwest and, and even kind of uh, into Texas, back up into Ohio, uh, into other parts of Missouri, but ends up at her grandmother's house in St. Louis. Uh, and of course, so we sort of grow up in more or less the same area. But what's interesting is she likes to say that there's no spiritualism involved in her background. And that there's a, a certain amount of lady protesting much too much in this case, because as we'll see, there's actually quite a lot of spiritualism in her family. But again, it's kind of in between that sort of initial Fox sisters kind of, um, you know, sort of 1860s, uh, 1850s, 1860s kind of initial peak. It sort of died down. And where it really, where the story really kicks off is when Pearl is a young married woman. So we're talking in the 19 teens. Um, but I, I think again, to set the scene a little more, by the time the story really begins, she is married to a, a Mr. Curran, who is 12 years her senior. He's a widower. They are living in St. Louis. They moved there in 1908. In 1904, the St. Louis World's Fair had happened, and this was a huge deal. Uh, such a huge deal that when I was growing up, it was still taught as if it was this incredibly important thing that the rest of the world all remembered and had a, you know, uh, sort of vivid memories of and uh, was really interested in. And of course, you go anywhere else and the only real uh, kind of relation anyone has to this is they might have seen 
the Judy Garland film, Meet Me in St. Louis, which is a wonderful film. But, um, you know, it's not this sort of uh, epoch-defining uh, event that uh, kind of people in St. Louis would have uh, seen it as. But that said, St. Louis would have been kind of a, a bit of a boom town at that point. You would have had a lot of people moving there from all over. Um, you, you would have had, you know, a, a lot of different cultures, but it still would have been in a lot of ways, a very kind of, um, I would say, uh, at least the people in charge, kind of a very waspy city, still very, very segregated. It's still actually a very segregated city, but uh, definitely a lot of uh, strong and sort of competing religious elements. But what's fascinating is she likes to say that, you know, her, her whole family, again, sort of disavows spiritualism or isn't just isn't particularly interested in organized religion, which, which again, is sort of a is a bit unusual for someone from her particular social class and background because there is a period of time where in her teens she sent to, she is sent to Chicago so certainly the next big city over if you like to stay with an uncle who runs a spiritual a sort of storefront spiritualist church so to me that's that you know you, you can't sort of say oh no we didn't do that when your uncle did this and you played piano in it so it's uh you know certainly something she has no affiliation with but uh you know, at the same time, it, it doesn't seem to be really a big deal in her life as such until, you know, she begins to start receiving these messages from so-called patient's worth. And so, again, you have almost kind of a background noise of spiritualism, if you like, but she doesn't, you know, she doesn't sort of go along with being, you know, affiliated with any kind of spiritualist organization. What the story is, and, and most of this checks out, although you'll see it, um, I would say, rendered in ways that get less and less like the original source material, is that she and her friend Emily Grant Hutchins, and Emily Grant Hutchings is important, and we'll come back to her, are just, you know, sort of playing around with Ouija boards. And again, if we're talking, you know, sort of 1912, 1913 is when they're starting this out, but it's about sort of 1916 that it really uh, kicks into high gear. This is just a fun parlor game. You don't have any of that kind of paranoia that they're opening a portal or that uh, you know anything bad is going to happen because they're, they're playing with their with their Ouija board. But you will see printed again and again in anything about the case that uh, you know poor Emily, the friend, doesn't really get much um, you know much from the board, if you like. And, and again, that's ironic for a reason. I'll come back to in a minute. But as soon as the the allegedly uninterested Pearl. Sits, uh, you know, sits down with the planchette. She gets uh, this sort of, you know, sort of opening statement, if you like, from Patience Worth, who says, and again, I have to say it because it's so ridiculous and amazing and wonderful. Uh, she says, many moons ago I lived, again I come, Patience Worth my name. Wait, I would speak with thee. If thou shalt live, then so shall I. I make my bread at thy hearth. Good friends, let us be merry. The time for work is past. Let the tabby drowse and blink her wisdom to the fire log, which, again, is bonkers, but um, but also kind of wonderful. So that is how that story is portrayed as sort of beginning. However, if you go back to a lot of the original source material, um, and again, I, I rely on this book called The Case of Patience Worth, which I picked up uh, at a secondhand bookstore many years ago and was very, very happy to find you'll find that there's actually a, a few weeks or months where um, Emily Grant Hutchings and, uh, and Pearl Curran are kind of playing back and forth because they keep just getting P-A-T-C, P-A-T-C. And for a while they think, and, and they say that it is um, a drunken Irishman friend of, their, of the husband. So that's uh, an interesting side note there that you don't see in a lot of the, um, 
the kind of prettied up version of things. But then at a certain point, they settle on, no, no, it, it's patient's worth. And she says she was born in either 1649 or 1694. You get both versions. And that um, she's an English woman who has, uh, you, know, it, you know, sometime hereafter turned up in the new world. She's gone to Nantucket where she is eventually murdered by Indians. And that's, uh, again, in a lot of times uh, stated in much more, uh, I'll say of the time language than, uh, than you have now with uh, talking about any kind of Native American culture, but that's you know to be expected of the period, it's a whole thing. But it's always a little bit nonspecific over uh, anything else. And, and again, we can get into a little bit later, there's even sort of, uh, not quite shades, but, but sort of, uh, I would say also almost sort of premonitions of what would happen in things like the Bridie Murphy story where people try to go around to try to find evidence that this person actually existed. And uh, I'll say there's a lot of wanting to believe in this. So um, again, the, but I'll just sort of start off with, you know, they're using the Ouija board. She starts to get these messages from so-called patient's worth. People get very, very excited about it. But uh, once patience begins to dictate her poems, her, her sort of short stories, um, it, 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 you know, it sort of it becomes a kind of initially local literary sensation, but then becomes a much broader, um, you know, just sort of media story. And it, it gets picked up in a lot of papers, uh, both all over the U.S., all over the world eventually. Uh, and this leads to all of these books being published. And, uh, and it, it gets to a really, um, I would say almost immediately as, you know, stuff begins to come out and get published, it starts to be like, oh, well, you know, these, these two, you know, modest housewives wouldn't be able to come up with this kind of thing themselves. Uh, you know, look, look at the, you know, these women have had no education. They, they you know, they, they don't know sort of X from Y. Uh, so there has to be, you know, there must be some other source for this. And, you know, they pretty much go along with it. And so that I think is the first kind of branch where it gets to be really interesting in terms of, you know, do they believe this from the get-go? And, and there's certainly a lot of evidence that Emily Grant Hutchings did not believe this from the get-go because she had been involved in a previous lawsuit over publishing uh, channeled works. So I think that's a, a particularly interesting, again, sort of first branch, if you like, is that uh, these are not just kind of, if you like, again, air quotes, ordinary housewives. One of these women is actually very highly educated, has published a lot of other work and would, would go on to be actually a well-known art critic. But at this point in time, again, sort of, uh, early 19-teens, uh, is best known, again, for kind of playing around with the Ouija board and eventually gets involved in a lawsuit over uh, a story or actually over an entire novel that's, uh, that she had had allegedly dictated to her through, through the board. So I, I think it's, it's interesting that the, the two women are, are almost viewed as you know, completely separate, not really, um, let's see, what's a good word? I don't want to say co-conspirators because I don't think that's what's going on either, but it's fascinating that, you know, maybe because of sort of differences in class or, or differences in, in background, they're, um, they're sort of seen as different, yet at the same time, a lot of the stories in the press will just uh, paint them both as, you know, oh, th these sort of simpletons who don't really know what they're doing. So just fascinating there in terms of having sort of no expectations of people, uh, whether they're women or not. It's, there's, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of things there around kind of class, around where they come from, uh, and a lot of assumptions are made. So that's one fascinating point there. And I'll, I'll pause for a minute in case you have questions on that part, because it gets weirder. <laughs> I was wondering if you might say something about the place of spirit guides or spirit contacts in 
I mean, you, you said that she wasn't a member of an official spiritualist organization, but I mean, there were kind of traditions, I suppose, by that point um, that had been established whereby the, the medium tends to have a spirit guide or a contact who is a recurring character who often speaks through them. And um, sometimes they were, you know, somebody from a, a faraway distant time and place, and they were given this exotic character. Sometimes they were like a Native American person or someone from, you know, India thousands of years ago, or, you know, very often they were given these kind of exotic personalities. Yeah. Um, and then other times they were somebody from, you know, merry old England or, you know, which goes right back to the, some of these ideas go right back to the Fox sisters in, in, in the 1840s. Um, I wonder if you could say a little bit about that, those expectations of what the personality was expected to be like the person you were communicating with. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And it's it's interesting that she, uh, she being Pearl, always takes great pains to not really describe the, the sort of patient's character as being like a, a spirit guide or anyone who's kind of guiding her, although it, it does kind of evolve into that a bit later. And we'll, we'll get to some of that. But she is really like, no, this is just someone who's dictating through me. Uh, you know, I don't know how it happens, if you like, even though, you know, pretty early on when she's doing the actual writing, especially for longer works, she gives up the Ouija board and is just, you know, sort of uh, speaking out loud and other people are transcribing the work for her. But, um, you know, she, she will go out of her way to just be like, no, no, she, she's writing. She's just using me as kind of the vessel, if you like. Uh, whereas you're absolutely right. You, you have so many of these other people of this period who have I would say almost especially kind of their Native American spirit guide, and it's um, it's all a bit cringy, and it's, uh, <laughs> it sure you know, it, it, you know, and some of it is just very um, hard reading these days. But it, it's funny that she is clearly aware of that tradition and is at pains to say, no, no, I, I'm not a part of that. And it, you know, that's also an interesting question: is that you know, does she sort of recognize that there are I don't know, it'd be like problematic things about that, or does she just not like how it kind of removes her from the equation, perhaps? Because she still also says, I'm not the one writing these things. Mm. So she still wants to um, sort of not, not be the, the, you know, the kind of uh, creative force, if you like, yet. I think it's also important to note that, you know, as, as uh, both a child and uh, young adult, she was, you know, she wanted to be on the stage. She was taking voice lessons, elocution lessons, all of these things. Um, you know, could, you know, could sing in French and Italian and, and, you know, was certainly not unfamiliar with a lot of these things, although she would deny knowledge of kind of higher learning uh, of any kind, if you like. But, uh, but, but certainly like uh, other people who she was, you know, sort of affiliated with, associated with, had those kind of spirit guides. Um, but this was something that she just kind of um, insisted she didn't have. But it, that's one of these ways in which it does kind of not fit the mold of that typical um, sort of channel, and I think too the fact that she only has this one uh, persona, if you like, in patients that she doesn't have other people she's able to sort of channel and reach out to her. And, and I think it's it's worth noting, and again to, to go back to Emily Grant Hutchings for for a minute, this is kind of the the golden age, if you like, of people channeling dead um, dead celebrities, or or maybe the first golden age of that and trying to get their works published and uh, kind of taking credit for that. And they would have multiple people. I, I know, um, I'm forgetting the name of the woman, but the one who, uh, you know, claimed to have channeled Oscar Wilde. I think she also had Dickens, all these other people who she put out other work uh, from, or sorry, you know, posthumous work from, if you like, that she would receive from, I think, through a spirit guide. But um, what's interesting is this is where Emily Grant Hutchins gets in trouble because 
she has a posthumous book by Mark Twain uh, written through the Ouija board. It's called Jack Heron. It's an amazing story if you go into the whole lawsuit around this. And again, this is all happening at the same time. This is, you know, 1916, 1917. This is exactly when we're getting all of this stuff from patients. But uh, at a certain point, uh, Clara Clemens, who's the daughter of, of Mark Twain, so Samuel Clemens, files suit against uh, Hutchings and says, well, either you have to say that uh, my father wrote all this and I'm the sole copyright owner or that you were a fraud, <laughs> which is genius, really. <laughs> you know, it's, pick one oh, or the other. That's brilliant. And Yeah, and of course that never happens. And uh, they had to destroy all copies, you know, not publish it any further. But again, these are the circles that, that Pearl is, is sort of... Um, associated with like again this is her friend who she initially starts channeling patients with um you know again whatever that actually looked like you have to think you know she didn't not see this going on so it certainly helps that maybe her her spirit you know if you want to call her her spirit guide if you like is not someone famous and is kind of unremarkable in a lot of ways you know she's just kind of um she's just kind of there and you know her backstory grows and grows over time but it's always quite non-specific and and i wonder if some of that is a you know an early lesson learned that you don't want your uh you, you don't want these people to be too well known or too obvious or too easy to pin down you want to kind of keep the mystery interesting in the ways in which this is like and yet unlike um the, the later uh Bridie murphy case in that yes again there's the religious element feels like it's absent you know i mean maybe that's why the spirit guide thing has been jettisoned because that's a very religious thing. That's like when you're communicating with, you know, some kind of guide who's there to teach you about the other world, there's this kind of spiritual or religious element present where if you are somebody who has just happened to stumble onto a connection with somebody in a different plane, you know, that's more like the, the scientifically rebranded version of, you know, ghost ghost communication that you would get later on with the SPR and the 89th Society yeah. Research. And then absolutely. Yeah. And and the people who investigated Bridie Murphy and, and Bernstein's book promotes it in that way as well. Like this is just an, an element of physics that we haven't yet understood rather than it is a overtly spiritual thing. And, and I wonder if she was even subconsciously coming at it in that way. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting question. And, and it's it's funny, too, because there are different religious elements being thrown around at first before they kind of settle on a consistent-ish narrative, because the backstory given for, for patients is that, again, whether she was born in 1649 or 1694, she will just say she was from across the sea. But she also says that she was a Puritan, and, you know, again, that she moves to Nantucket. And there are clues given, again, kind of, you know, presaging the, the Bridie Murphy thing, that she was from somewhere in kind of the West Country, Dorset, that, that kind of thing. She does talk about, uh, you know, sort of a specific village setup. And one of Pearl Curran's sort of early uh, champions, if you like, who is just blown over by Patience Worth's poetry, by, by all of her work, does, you know, again, like the Bridie Murphy story, goes off to England, tries to find, you know, this this village that he thinks fits, you know, all of these things. And, and he never quite manages to do so. But he, you know, this is an, uh, the, the person in question, this guy is called Casper Yost. He was the editor of the Globe Democrat. So that was one of the two big newspapers in St. Louis, which was still going when I was growing up and then folded, uh, I want to say in the mid 1980s. And now there's only one. But you know, he was all about publishing this in his paper. 
he was, you know, he absolutely wanted to believe he was someone who just was, you know, all in on it. And it's really because of him that the story kind of, um, kind of snowballs, if, if you like. But, but, but again, so much of this kind of wanting to believe is, is, um, you know, makes it very easy to overlook a couple of things. And it, it's sort of fascinating the extent to which there is a kind of breakdown of even among people who are, are reading the work, a lot of them are like, okay, look, I, I don't buy that this is what's happening. But I think some of this work is really interesting. But on the other hand, there are people who kind of care less about the work, they're excited about it. But it's more the the, the sort of mechanics of it that they are very into it's, Again, this is proving you know, the beyond and, and all of these other things. And then what's interesting is, again, you have, you know, effectively this this couple in the middle, you have, you know, Pearl Curran and her husband who are just kind of rolling with it. Um, they're not making a great deal of money off of it. It's, you know, and this is, again, one of the things about the story that's a little strange is, it's you know, I feel like so much of these modern ones, you can kind of follow the money and figuring out who's profiting off of this kind of thing. And almost no one really profits so it's a it's a bit of a weird one and it's like is it just because they weren't good at that or you know what's happening there so yeah and i suppose um, what if we take a step back then and think of the greater I impact of this and um like the name is still is still known today and and this story pops up in, in books i had as a kid and so it you know it's found its place among the the annals of famous ghost stories maybe not top tier but you know it would be in the books um, why, why is this being picked up by newspapers or why is this um, making a splash? What is there that's unique or special about it? Is it the more straightforward nature of the case? Is it the fact that it seems less religious or less spiritual and more potentially therefore more believable? Or is, is it that it has a particular champion um, writing the books and pushing the case forward? I, I think it's a bit of a combination of things. I, I think one is, I, I think there um, th there is kind of that that sort of, I hesitate to call it feminist, but I would say kind of feminine interest in, um, you know, again, a sort of ordinary, air quotes, woman who's able to find this other uh, power, again, whether she's doing it consciously, whether she's not doing it at all, and she's just the vessel. And this is something that is is really kind of supporting Pearl Curran later in her life, is this sort of uh, group of women who are just, you know, fully supportive of you know, however this stuff is being dictated through her, her, whether she's doing it, whether it's kind of spiritual or not, she almost develops this kind of um, almost sort of sisterhood, if you like, of women who just kind of either see themselves reflected in this or kind of want to be a part of this or see this as kind of almost, you know, an early, maybe early is the wrong word, but kind of a, a sort of, you know, feminine power movement of, of a sort. And so she always has a lot of women supporters, uh, even if they're not fully bought into the story, they are fully bought into her as kind of the, the person driving it. So I think that's one really interesting element. And and again, those people really kind of keep her going in her, her later life, which uh, is not terribly long, and we'll, we'll get to some of that. But I think it's it's really interesting that you have that element, but you do also have this kind of literary world that is looking for something a bit unique. And, and again, it's sort of sort of tripping over the, you know, the start of the First World War and it carries on after it. So you do get that uptick in spiritualism after the First World War, certainly uh, for, for other reasons. But yeah, I think this kind of literary element of it too, I think people are still latching onto it because it gives them kind of a glimpse into the spiritualist world that maybe isn't quite as 
if you like depressing as some of the stuff you're getting from the first world war where everyone else is you know obviously trying to channel dead loved ones and and that kind of thing this is someone who's been dead for hundreds of years allegedly uh who's creating some something kind of beautiful so i, I think it's almost like a i i think um you know it's it's, it's almost like a, a more digestible if you like version of this and, and and i think you know you may be right too that the sort of removal of the religious element or or an overtly religious element may have something to do with it too so it's uh it's again maybe more accessible to people and and maybe a little bit more um i don't know user friendly if you like and and i think too it's it's also really important to note that the particular kind of work that that patience or pearl whichever one is, is writing is is very much of its time so it's uh and i can read out some of the the prose or poetry if you want in a bit but it is it's not something that would be popular today. I'm going to put that right out there. It is uh, very much um, very purple. It's um, it's a thing. But I think, too, there's something to do with expert opinion supporting it that people at the time, you know, perhaps very different from now, really liked. I mean, that's another reason some of this stuff does spread and become popular is because mostly, again, through through Casper Yost trying to, to find other people who will support this work. He sent letters out to all sorts of people to kind of read the work, you know, get feedback on it, um, you know, get, give reviews, that kind of thing. He manages to find people who are like, ah, yes, this is absolutely the work of someone who would have been alive in the 17th century. You know, there are no modern words. Uh, it, it is, it is, you know, perfect. This could not be faked. And of course, if you look at it now, that's absolutely, you know, bonkers. There's no reason that any, you know, anyone who's done any kind of like, you know, sort of child level reading of, of English literature would ever come away with that opinion. It is just, you know, completely sort of coggy oldie English. But, you know, again, you have one person saying that other people think, well, it must be true. And so it gives it this kind of air of kind of authenticity, too. So I think that also helps drive some of the popularity and that you do get sort of um, expert opinion saying, yes, this is this is 100 percent true. But it's also a funny thing that, you know, Patience, again, we'll, we'll say Patience, uh, you know, her her, her mo most popular works are not set in the era in which she's meant to have lived and died. One is set in biblical times and the other is a sort of Victorian bodice ripper. So how did she know those periods? So it's, it's very confusing. So Some of the kind of, you know, ordinary housewife has an extraordinary occurrence trope if you want to call it that it does also yeah. reminds me of of uh, the Brady murphy story with with the i think virginia ty i think was the chicago yeah. housewife who has that experience we'd be remiss not to um focus on the the feminist angle a little bit more and just point out that ever since the beginning of the of the feminist movement i mean it's it's been pointed out very many times that you know in some cases these were societies where you know, women's options for what they could do in life were somewhat limited and therefore having the power and the focus of being a medium gave them certain, um, you know, abilities to, to behave in certain ways or to travel or to have attention or or even even a career, you know, has long been seen as one way out of that sort of more restrictive society. And um, I, I wonder if that's an element of what's happening here. Yeah, I, I think it's absolutely a, a really important one because she does end up getting to travel. She is doing, if you like, shows. She has a sort of jewel-encrusted uh, Ouija board at a certain point that she gets wow. to use when she's on the road. Um, and again, a lot of this is happening in the 1920s. So again, after, after the First World War, people are looking for some kind of entertainment. Um, and she's really out there able to 
um, you know, kind of go out and about. And she is, uh, you know, she's doing these, they, and they're never called seances or, or they're rarely called seances, but she's, you know, doing these sessions, if you like, with, with patients, you know, and people can, um, you know, it's almost like going to an improv show now. People can throw out a topic and patients will just on the spot dictate, um, you know, dictate a poem or dictate, um, you know, a, a short piece, which again is like, even if you don't like the style of what comes out, like that's pretty incredible to be able to just, you know, boom, just, tur you know, sort of uh, turn out a poem on the spot live. Now, the, the other fascinating thing, again, as much as she likes to portray herself as, you know, uh, untutored, very unlettered, you know, there is a lot of good evidence that Pearl Curran did go up and sort of read up on things and um, really kind of try to to study up on um, what might come out. So almost, you know, again, almost in a much more sort of calculating, like not quite cold reading kind of a thing, but I think she knew that she would be able to produce certain things if, if required. Now, again, whether she was doing that sort of consciously or whether that's something that she really believed was coming through this sort of spirit voice, it's all very unclear. Um, but what's what's really interesting is we can actually get in get out a lot of this because fortunately the papers are preserved so there are 28 boxes of uh you know all of the things of um all of her personal papers or, or a good chunk of them uh her husband's as well correspondence all, all that stuff the missouri historical society and so it's actually possible to go in research you know really find out what's in there and that has been Really helpful. There is one uh, really good biography that's out there, um, you know, by, by a proper academic. That's really where he's gone in. He's done the work, and he's really sort of combed through, you, you know, kind of what's what's going on here. And again, because that you know was preserved and exists, we can do that. Now, now that said, there's still a lot of questions, and how much of this, you know, again, can really be answered at this remove, as, as to you know, again, what was kind of conscious, what was genuine, who knew what. Those are still all a little bit vague, but we do have evidence in, um, you know, letters she wrote to people that she would go in and kind of study up, if, if you like. And, and again, the, the extent to which her kind of um, humble background, if you like, was played up is wildly uh, overstated. Like, you know, she absolutely knew a lot of other sort of literary works. She was uh, sort of hanging with a literary-ish set. Um, so, you know, again, a lot of this, once you start to pick at it, doesn't, doesn't quite hang together, but again, at, at the same time, um, and again, almost more later in life, it becomes, uh, it becomes less literary and it does become almost this kind of, um, guiding force, if you like. So it, it almost takes a turn, but, uh, in kind of a dark way. So there's, there's, there's a lot to unpack, uh, it's the long and short of every part of this story. So I wonder if we might be ready for a, a reading from some of her work so we can get a flavor of uh, what it was like. Uh, yes. Yeah, so, so I've got a good one right here. This is uh, something that she did in 1919. And, and again, this is um, something, uh, this was one of these kind of events where people would toss something out and say, hey, I want to hear something on this or, or something on that. So she actually put together two uh, sort of two different, um, I'm trying to figure out what their poems, yeah, they're poems. And she actually had kind of one play off the other. So this is from one called The Merry Tale. And again, I think anyone hearing this is going to say, oh, that is not how Puritans spoke, but you know, it's, uh, <laughs> it's good times. 
So uh, the, the line from this goes, Hi, 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 ye mouth-legged, fetch a nag, and be ye sure that his back be not curved as a new moon. And they brought forth a nag crusted of ice and snorting mists unto the crisp airs, and Cato raised up Aladdin and set him straddle o'er the nag's back. Which, you know, yeah, this is all totally normal. Um, and Cato upped o'er his legs and swung him free o'er the snaws, setting with his arm about the form of Quando. And he sped o'er the nag and made him swift o'er the snaw's crust. Eu, eu, down the draw, and danged be he who first says stop. And it carries on in kind of that, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but but again, it, it's you know that is one set of things she would do is the, you know, she would do these sort of these sort of poems. But again, these novels that she dictated that are set in, again, first a biblical era and, and then in 19th century England, it's like, what, <laughs> what is the story here that people are like, yes, this is absolutely, you know, something dictated by a woman who lived in the 17th century. It just doesn't make any sense. But again, people are willing to kind of... Um, Except that this was not written by this woman in front of them, but instead by this, you know, this sort of uh, consciousness, if you like, uh, that that sort of uh, lives through her. So it's it's just very very strange. And um, I, I'm just going to where I've got some uh, some little things here where uh, she does really go through and say, oh no, these are you know once you're kind of in the you know the afterlife because there's the odd you know explanation of this. Um, and again, obviously, I'm paraphrasing. It's like, oh, no, you, you can get in and, you know, just kind of see these other eras. And it's all it's all fine there. You can just jump right in, which, again, is interesting. And and I'm kind of surprised no one else has kind of taken that out. I, I almost feel like the only other the only other reference I've seen to something like that is on like BBC's ghosts, where the ghosts have been, you know, watching loose women and things like that. And they you know have, are able to kind of interact with the other ghosts of different eras because of that. But you know, I, I've not seen it taken up in kind of a serious, if you like, way um, apart from that. So it's it's just a, a really interesting, um, just a really interesting idea that I, I don't think anyone else has really explored. But uh, even if I'm looking at like bits of her, her novel, it is, again, it is hard going, but you might see how people who like to read a lot of kind of Walter Scott or, um, mm, yeah. or maybe, maybe not Scott directly, but sort of more derivative sort of Scott, you know, Scott-like stuff, you could see how they might get into it because um, this is from one of her novels uh, called Telka. And you get a character saying, nay, Telka, I have fashioned from a horn an armlet for thy wearing, list ye do. See the lines are red and purple here. The good fires do say tis red, and the drops of him, and scribe to mind his blood, for they were red, and purple Tecla for the king. Yea, and for the sorry time, a robed in purple, they do chant Dolores Lamento, and, and it goes on in, uh, you know, Hodge, in that Hodge kind of way. <laughs> well, exactly, exactly. And uh, actually, at one point, they do have, um, because this is all the rage at that point, they do have an expert say, so who really, who really wrote the plays of Shakespeare, Patience? And she just is having none of it. It's, uh, it, it's fascinating that she just is like, no, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go there. <laughs> and so, <laughs> um, you know, it, it's just fascinating. Um, but she, she always refuses to tell fortunes or tell the future. But that said, she does start telling Pearl and her husband how they should be 
living their lives. And that gets to be, you know, how much of that again is, is very, is a very sort of conscious thing. She will also sort of snipe at Pearl's mother and it's clear that Pearl and her mother never really got on. So, you know, how much of this is just, oh, I have an excuse to kind of act out if you like, or, um, you know, that kind of thing. And again, it, it's just fascinating that, but people are like, oh, oh, that's patience for you. She gets, she gets that way. Um, which again, is a 17th century Puritan. You're like, really? <laughs> she's, she's actually kind of snarky um, and funny in a lot of ways too, that you wouldn't necessarily expect from, again, allegedly a, a, a Puritan who's come over from, you know, somewhere in England uh, to, to 17th century Nantucket. Like it, it doesn't, uh, you know, it doesn't in any way hang together. And yet, people are happy to go along with the story. So it's, it's fascinating there. But, but yeah, again, it, it comes back to this idea of, um, you know, there's this agency that it gives, uh, you know, both uh, Pearl and her sort of female followers that they wouldn't have otherwise. So I, I think you can never discount that as, as part of the story. And it, it's funny that going back to Emily Grant Hutchings, like she does eventually drop all of the sort of, um, spiritualism, all, all of the sort of uh, things that get her involved in the lawsuit and is just, you know, writing on her own. But she also came from a family of more means. You know, she was, you know, she did, you know, had gone to, you know, at least had a couple of years of university. You know, she had access to probably more than a typical, again, air quotes, housewife would have had um, of that era. And, and in fact, you know, was a well-respected art critic up to her death into the, like, in the 1960s. So these things, you know, do have a kind of long, time scale in, in some ways. And, and clearly some of that was more accessible to some people than others. Did um, any of the kind of big bigger names in um, sort of paranormal research at the time, like the Harry Price or, or I don't know, Nandor Fodor or one of these guys, did any of them ever deign to comment on her? Was she taken seriously by any of the more you know, scientific-minded researchers to, to, to call, if, I don't know if I'm being too kind calling them that, or, or <laughs> no, the FBR, heaven forbid. It's, it's an interesting question because she she always sort of avoids all of those things. Um, and, and the people who do end up kind of weighing in tend to be psychologists and psychiatrists um, rather than kind of parapsychologists or, para, you know, that, that kind of thing. So I, I, I wonder to what extent it is, you know, did you just not have that kind of um, mechanism, if you like, in the U.S. or... Um, you know, was it just sort of so tied to the kind of the, the literary world that uh, people in kind of the more, um, again, kind of the more esoteric side just didn't even didn't even want to get involved? Because I've not that's something I've looked for and I've never really found a lot of um, a lot of references to. You do find a ton of people, again, from, you know, kind of from the world of sort of that that era of psychiatry saying, oh, this is really interesting. She might have multiple personalities or, you know, there's a lot of that kind of thing, which now, again, we would look back on it and say, well, some of this is a little either simplistic or, you know, um, just doesn't quite fit the case here. But I do think it's fascinating that they went for this kind of um, men of science approach, if you like, to try to explain some of these things. But again, if you go back to the sort of this Walter Franklin Prince book where he goes through everything about the case of Patience Worth, he publishes a lot of their thoughts and a lot of their opinions. Um, he does acknowledge that it's a problem that that patients knows about all of these things she shouldn't know about. But it's really about sort of seeing what the psychologists have to say about it. Um, but and also kind of uh, hand waving when you do get one or two 
um, literary scholars or, or maybe even philologists or, or people who would have really understood that uh, this language is completely made up. Like, no, 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 we're not going to publish their stories. We're, we're just going to have the, you know, the, the cherry-picked ones where people think this is great and, and perfect. But it is interesting that he does really uh, let, you know, kind of let some of the psychologists say, oh, well, maybe she does have multiple personalities or maybe one of these multiple personalities is this woman who died in the 17th century. And again, it, it, they kind of try to have their cake and eat it. It's, it's very... Um, it, it, it's a very interesting book to go through and try to see what's what's going on there. But, you, you know, it's it, it never really gets into that kind of Harry Price or um, that kind of thing. It's it's very much in this kind of um, I'm trying to think a good word for it, that this kind of early flush, if you like, of American psychiatry. They get very excited about it. So that's really where that kind of scientific uh, exploration of it ends. Interesting. I'm, I'm always trying to figure out, like, what are the different currents of you know, these these groups of people who knew each other and comment on each other's work. And yeah. I, I mean, I've just finished a very intense biography of Arthur Conan Doyle, where, he, you know, he basically meets everybody who's everybody in the history of, you know, spiritualism and psychic research from, you know, from the going from the 1880s right up until about 1930. So, and, you know, he has something to say about all of them and they have something Absolutely. to say about him. <laughs> and I'm so interested in, you know, who shows up in these books and who doesn't and why. And was she considered like somehow a different strand in her day because, you know, her mechanism was slightly different or because she was writing these novels. And was it more like Patience Worth was a vehicle for her to, you know, it was her gimmick for writing her novels instead of something that was seen as, you know, the way spiritualists saw their contacts? Was, was it, did they, yeah. did they categorize this differently for some reason? I, I think they did a little bit because th there are a lot of comments from uh, again from from more kind of literary people because that does make it into into the uk like her books get reviewed sometimes favorably sometimes unfavorably but the the real test to them is not whether or not it was sort of a ghost or or not or, or you know again this american housewife um coming up with these things but it's like oh would someone who wasn't english be able to do this and it's like it's such a very specific kind of litmus test where you're like huh okay <laughs> um and, and you know and the ones again that are kind of seen as wins by uh you know th this particular book are all the ones who are like oh well you know clearly no one not english could know any of these aspects of english life which are again just cherry picked from novels for the most part <laughs> but it's uh, you know it it's it's seen as kind of um a ringing endorsement, if, if, if you like. Um, it, it, you know, th there's there's one really fabulous line in um, in one of these reviews where uh, they say the language of Patience Worth is as varied as her works. Which again, I'll just pause there and say that that's not really. You know, I don't know that that's a ringing endorsement of this kind of thing, but okay. But usually in her literary productions and always in her conversation, it has an archaic form that has individual peculiarities not found in or at least not characteristics of any recorded writings, which, again, it's like, I don't think this is the win you think it is, but okay. <laughs> uh, it is never uh, imitative uh, from Chaucer or Gower down to the present time. There is no written work which it closely resembles. It has its sources in the provincial dialects of England, but no dialect of the present nor so far as the writer has been able to discover anyone of the past can be exactly identified with it. Generally, however, it has the prevailing characteristics of the 17th century. One of those characteristics is its grammatical irregularity. And, and then it sort of goes on from there where it's like, well, so you're saying she's making it up. Okay. <laughs> so again, this is seen as, you know, 
someone saying yes this is this is clearly that it's like but again then then how come she can also you know write a, a victorian you know kind of pot boiler what what's happening here so it's uh how, you know very confusing does she have a long career is this something that fate just allows to, is allowed to continue for for years doing the same thing well and this is actually where it it, it becomes sort of tragic and um where it actually gets a little bit stranger is after the mid 1920s the interest in this kind of thing kind of dies away because the particular kind of uh, almost kind of channeling or you, you know or i wouldn't call it sort of table tilting but it's you know it's seen in that kind of you know regard with kind of a, almost a victorian kind of spiritualism versus this sort of uh, this sort of more almost kind of free form, you know, 1920s, 1930s kind of a thing. So people become less interested in it. Uh, she and her husband lose a lot of money over trying to publish the Patience Worth magazine, which is just sort of trying to sort of sell it, you know, kind of out to her various um, fans, if, if you like. They, they are basically, you know, sort of uh, publishing a zine on, you know, what, what Patience has been up to. But, but that said, she does maintain this sort of small circle of um sort of uh circle of supporters if you like but it's not so much that they start to that people start to lose interest or that uh kind of the literary works become less uh well received although that that certainly happens but um again i think i think it's important to to backtrack for a minute to say that pearl marries john who's much older than her um, and again he was a widower had a young daughter uh she marries him when she's 24 uh, patience kind of appears, if you like, when she's about 30. They're still childless. This is a big thing for them. Uh, she and Patience uh, both very much love children, but are childless. This is a thing. But at a certain point in the mid-1920s, Patience starts to tell them, uh, you know, directly, uh, you need to go adopt a baby, and it needs to be like this. And she is very specific about what kind of baby they need to go find and so she is, is saying you know it, it, there's a, a sort of particularly kind of weirdly racist bit where they have to make sure it's sort of of pure blood and all of these very 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 strange things uh and they are looking far and wide across america that they, they cannot find you know just the right baby so you know it's just not uh it's not coming together but again, this is something that is is sort of dictated to them. Um, although at this point, she stopped having to, you know, use the Ouija board. This is stuff that is kind of just spoken out loud. But they do end up, you know, magically finding just the right baby, um, you know, and they end up calling her Patience Worth Curran, which is very, very weird. Now, and there's there's a lot to to sort of go into here. Um, there was, a, you know, there was an article about it, the baby that is being raised by a ghost from sort of 1920. But it, it's, uh, again, there's, it's like, what is happening here? Like they dress this child up as, you know, their idea of a Puritan. Uh, it's very, very, very weird. Um, now, people who have done, you know, kind of real work in, in the archives think that uh, unlike the story that they gave out that um, they found this particular, you know, recently widowed uh married woman uh who was you know kind of a death's door uh with her pregnancy um that they had sort of found her and were helping her she gives birth uh conveniently dies they take baby patients home with them however 
it seems like what is more likely to have happened is that uh, her husband's daughter, who would have been, you know, a, a young woman at this stage, might have been the mother of this baby, although that's, you know, again, it's not certain. But again, this is all sort of being framed through, you know, through the lens of, oh, well, you know, the, the ghost told us to go get a baby, we're going to go get a baby. And so they do. And no one really questions this. Again, it's sort of seen as, you know, just, just sort of something that they're very, you know, very public about. Um, you know, they're all still very sad that they haven't had their own biological child, but now they have this baby that the ghost found for them. So I think that, you know, is weird enough. Then they start calling her Patience We, which is even weirder. And it's just like so much to, to unpack there. Um, but then, you know, sadly in 1922, uh, her husband dies. He's in his early 50s. Uh, and then surprise, Pearl, who is 39 by this point, gives birth. Um, so the likelihood of it actually being her husband's child is, is almost nil. But, you know, they're, they're, you know, the baby is born about six or seven months after he died. Although, again, he was meant to have had a long illness. So I think anyone actually kind of doing the math on that would have been like, huh, okay. Um, you know, went through that whole marriage, no, no baby. And then suddenly she is left, you know, a widow with two children, neither of which is probably related to her husband directly. But again, it's, it's a bit of a strange thing, but, you know, she's suddenly left on her own, has to support these, these two children. It's the 1920s, you know, it's, it's a lot less, you know, people are a lot less interested in this kind of thing. Um, but, you know, she just doesn't have the uh, you know, the same kind of public draw, if you like. So she moves out to California. She marries the widow of her, of her late music teacher, which is also a little weird, but this, this is going to be a recurring theme. And again, this is something that, uh, you know, Patience was like, no, no, this is, this is the way forward. He dies, because uh, again, he was also much older. When they're living in California, and again, this is now moving from the 1920s into the 1930s, she's got, you know, Patience Wee, and she's got Eileen, the other daughter. She marries her first love from St. Louis, who she had run into in California. They get married. Um, but again, you're still continuing to get some work from, from Patience. Patience is also still sort of helping to raise these children. It's all very, very, very weird. But, um, you know, toward the end, the only way any of them are supporting themselves is that there's a, a wealthy fan of, of some of, uh, or basically of all of her work who's giving them a stipend. And again, it's it's a very strange way to live, but it, it gets even stranger. So again, she's continuing to uh, dictate the work from patients. She's got these two children. Um, you know, she's writing letters about how things are, are not great. Uh, she's She's probably in poor health as well. But that said, she's actually starting to do a, lot, a little bit of work under her own name. So she actually writes this, um, this small piece, um, and I'm just looking up again what it's called. Oh, it's called Rosa Alvaro en Trant, and it's about a girl who works in a Chicago department store, which is something that she had done as a young woman, um, who's convinced by a medium that she has a spirit guide who is a Spanish woman named Rosa Alvaro, and it is actually optioned by um what would become mgm it's made into a movie uh and she is super excited about it they pay her fifteen hundred dollars so a lot of money at that point but a lot of people did see this as kind of being a almost a confession a confession if you like that you know 
this uh, this person who has this sort of fraudulent medium that she's working with uh, can see this other more exciting lifestyle through it. But um, unfortunately, just not not too long after that, um, she's uh, I want to say she's in her late 40s or early 50s. But uh, she she gets pneumonia and dies. Uh, there are also rumors that she had had other other things going on potentially. But again, they had mostly been living on, apart from that fifteen hundred dollars, this money from one of the wealthy fans. And here's where it gets weirder again. So um, again, patience, of course, is gone because she can't be channeled by uh, by the daughters who are again sort of teenagers, young adults at this point. But the the elder of the two, so Patience Wee, who likes to be called Patty, I mean, weird that she didn't want to just be called Patience, so you can't imagine what's going on there, but um, marries the son of this sort of wealthy benefactor, but, um, you know, things are, are not going well. They're, they're living very much kind of um, that particular sort of 1930s Hollywood lifestyle, and she ends up dying of a drug overdose, overdose when she's only 27. And the other daughter had actually been kind of looking after her for a good number of years, even though, again, she would have only been in her early to mid-20s. Um, and then there is some rumor, some discussion that the remaining daughter would occasionally channel patients, uh, you know, kind of for, for friends and family. But again, there's another weird part where the remaining daughter marries her sister's widower. So again, people are all sort of being passed around um, here in, the, in this sort of weird friend group, um, although she did later go on to, to marry other people after that, so I don't know if it was uh, kind of purely a marriage of convenience. It's a lot harder to find records about this, uh, but she only died in the 1980s in, um, in New Orleans, so at that point it all kind of does come to an end, but it's fascinating that really, you know, this, this persona is is really directing all of these things in, in not just one woman's life, but, the, you know, her daughters, you know, this whole family, and in ways that ultimately have tragic results. I mean, you, you have to think that, uh, you know, th this this kind of childhood maybe did not contribute to the best mental health for you know, some of these some of these people. But, uh, and, and I think that's the part of the story that gets left out. You know, it tends to focus on the literary output and then sort of Pearl dies tragically and like, but you know, the, the sort of after effects of this are worth looking into as well and figuring out what what did this all mean? And, you know, again, who knew what, when, how come they really couldn't make this uh, sort of, you know, viable career, if you like, like, why was it losing the money in the long term? And, and people use that as a kind of, um, to, to point to sort of evidence that that's, you know, what made it genuine was that they didn't make money. And you're like, well, again, maybe they were just bad at it. You know, that doesn't mean that uh, there wasn't a, a more, um, what's a good word, sort of, um, I don't want to say cynical because I don't think it's cynical, but a more sort of calculated element there. But I, I think, uh, and I think this is what, what the, the one really good biography does come out with is that, you know, she probably didn't know to what extent this was, you know, her, you know, sort of a, a consciousness that she recognizes her own versus something that she really did think she might have been channeling or, or getting from somewhere, even if there were all these inconsistencies and you know, that, that things don't necessarily add up. And, and I think that that was probably what a lot of her followers thought too, was that, oh, well, you know, it, it may not be uh, a conscious thing, but equally it may not be um, a purely spectral thing as well. It might sit somewhere in the middle. And, and that's probably what she believed. So I think that's probably what we have to kind of 
take away knowing what we know about the case. But but again, I think it's so interesting that it's been kind of forgotten in a lot of ways, but that when you do see it, some of these other elements are glossed over. And I think it's important to try to unpack all of them because they do all fit together. And, and I think in ways that help inform the things that would come later, like, again, like your Bridie Murphys or even kind of your Elizabeth Clare prophets in, you know, the 70s and 80s, like a lot of these elements are there and it's, how do you unpack them? Mm. I'm reminded of a few other cases as well. Um, Joan Grant in the 1940s was a oh, yes. housewife who, who wrote books about being a reincarnation of ancient Egyptian royalty and also <laughs> used her alter ego to publish novels set in that time period and, and was friendly with Dennis Wheatley, as I recall. And uh, it, yes. it influenced him in his ideas about reincarnation. And, and then, you, yeah, you, ha you have uh, Brian Murphy in the 1950s. And then you have the, the Dodal Stone poltergeist in the, that was what, their 80s? Oh, yeah, 80s, yeah. Which yeah. I, I suppose I'm reminded of just because of the sort of, you know, um, uh, what, what would you call it? The 1600s sort of oldie worldly language that the, the spirit uses uh, reminds me of that particular case. Yeah, and the absolute insistence that, oh, no, experts have reviewed this. And you're like, no, they haven't. <laughs> <laughs> um, are there any long-term consequences that you see coming uh, stemming from this case? It's, it's a good question. I, I think it's, in, in some ways, like, I, I'm surprised we don't see more of what we might call automatic writing nowadays. It really did seem to fall out of fashion. And, and I think, you know, you really did have it, like, again, in, in, in some of these other cases, uh, it almost morphs into that... Uh, you know, when people are, are chatting with their, you know, their alien friends that they meet in the 60s and 70s, like that's where that kind of goes as, as a narrative. But I, I think you don't have people sort of, um, you, you know, relying on that as as, as uh, saying, oh, no, I am I am getting this consciousness or whatever um, through the Ouija board anymore. And I, I do wonder if maybe this will come back because these things are cyclical. And, you know, you can, you know, certainly look at someone like, like Yates, who was all in on this because his wife could do it. And, you know, I, I do wonder if it'll, it'll make a return. Maybe people will have learned different lessons from it, perhaps, and that maybe you need to be a little more thoughtful about how you treat the people involved, because, you know, there are clearly serious psychological implications for, you know, the, the, the children and uh, other people involved. So I wonder if there's a, a way to kind of enjoy this uh but also help uh make sure there's supports for people who are kind of stuck in the middle of it if you like and i think in a way that maybe are not in a lot of uh other cases like certain like poltergeist cases like the enfield poltergeist things like that where you just are like no one's helping anyone here <laughs> so, so how can how can you sort of get people to step in and maybe um still maybe support the idea or see what's interesting about the idea but also uh also make sure that people don't have this sort of permanent sort of psychological fallout from it Sure. That about takes us up to time, Lisa. Where would you like people to find you and your work online? So you can certainly hear me online at the Beer Ladies podcast. We are at Beer Ladies Pod on all of the socials, or I am on at Lisa Grimm, where I tend to talk more about spooky things, techie things, theater things, all, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, and I'm, I'm always out looking now, uh, now that I'm, you know, living in Dublin, always looking for more local uh, spooky things to explore and uh, stuff to check out. So if anyone's got any of those, send them my way. Yeah, I'll, I'll double that. Always looking for, always looking for more good stories. Lisa, thank you very much. That was tremendous. Oh, always a pleasure. Thank you. Right, uh, that almost takes us to the end. Huge thanks to Lisa for always being 
a great guest. Um, still feeling a tiny bit of the lurgy here at the cabin, not feeling amazing. And also the rain's really kicked off uh, since I've been editing this episode. Perhaps you can hear it in the background. However, I do have some fun stuff to report, some interaction, stuff like that. Um, I paid back Lisa the favour and appeared on the Beer Ladies podcast Halloween episode and I had a great time doing it and I got to talk about uh, ghost dog stories, got to talk about folklore in general and I got a little bit on my high horse talking about uh, various elements of Victorian era folklore and mythology, why they were so obsessed with the concept of pagan survivals because I just could not get it out of my system this month for some reason and uh, hopefully um, you'll enjoy that and it doesn't take over the episode too much but I had a lot of fun doing it and um, and, and Lisa was amazing to have me on so, so huge thanks for that and that is the Beer Ladies podcast uh, on their Halloween episode which ought to be out hopefully at about the same time as this one I also made an appearance recently on the Workers Cauldron podcast and um, that is over their recent episode about the 19, uh, 1960s gay liberation movement and witchcraft. If those sound like two uh, elements that should not be together, well, David over at the Workers' Cauldron has found a connection and asked me specifically to talk about Charles Leland, a 19th century American folklorist who was, guess what, interested in the idea of pagan survivals and witch cult religions. And it's all a little bit Margaret Murray. And I had a tremendously good time um, talking to David all about that. So I, recommend, I recommend you checking out their most recent episode at the time of recording. I'd also like to congratulate uh, another friend who's been on this show a few times. That is Lauren the Gothic Bookworm for her recent History Today article about Tutankhamun and and mummy mania and Egyptomania. And uh, yeah, great, great to see that they're still getting really solid um, guests on really solid writers to provide information and um, also on that article she um, is working alongside uh, Roger Luckhurst who is anybody knows is pretty much the most important or has written one of the most important books about the history of the mummy's curse and one of my own favorites so great great um, enjoyment to read that article and to see uh, two people whose work I'm really interested in going on there I also want to say thanks to Stellar Blue Galaxy for buying me a coffee. I'll just remind you one more time, folks, over at buymeacoffee.com forward slash wide Atlantic. You too can be featured uh, or read out on the podcast. And as always, you can say hi over at Twitter where I am at Strange Ireland or on Instagram where I am now back to my old handle of wide underscore Atlantic underscore weird. Now, I've saved the best for last because I made uh, an exciting find this week. So, like I said at, at the top, been going through a bit of a ghost story phase. I've been digging through my old ghost story books, but a relatively new book to me, at least because I picked it up at the Greg Lamanna book fair that happened uh, just a couple of months ago. This is called Ghosts and Hauntings by Dennis Bardens. And this is from the original books from 1965. My edition is from 1967. It has a a horrible cover, but I picked it up nonetheless. And of all things, I found a Margaret Murray story in this book from the mid-60s or perhaps a little bit earlier. The the writer Bardens doesn't actually put a date on this, but he says this. I remember the late Professor Margaret Murray that remarkable authority on witchcraft, magic, and what I would call the darker labyrinths of human thought and anthropology, telling me what she thought about ghosts. We had been discussing witchcraft, a favourite subject of hers, and she had agreed to appear on a television programme about witches, which I was then organising for a television network. 
Okay, folks, so you can imagine my excitement upon reading this. You know my obsession with Victorian pagan stuff and Margaret Murray uh, in the 1920s as well, writing about similar things. I did not know that she had spoken about ghosts, so this, this was an exciting find. Bardens goes on to say, She was 96 years old at the time and so clear in her thoughts and so self-reliant that she had attended every session of the British Association in Edinburgh even to the point of making copious notes on the subjects that interested her. Our conversation drifted to ghosts, a subject on which I had frequently written and broadcast. Has it ever struck you, she asked me, that ghosts are so frequently seen in places where the air has been left comparatively undisturbed, such as rooms in castles which have been unoccupied perhaps for centuries? I confessed that this aspect had escaped me and pointed to the evidence of apparitions having appeared in places where the air was not only disturbed but frequently in a tumult, such as far out at sea and on country roads exposed to the flail and fury of the gales. True, she agreed, but consider how many haunted houses are old and have sections which, because of the very size of the place, are not used. Agreed, I said, but what inference emerges? Perhaps the dust, in some strange way, photographs what has happened, she said, for you must remember that dust is not a flat surface. These tiny particles may settle, but the atmosphere still retains some of them in a suspended state, and they form a three-dimensional surface. So this is this is Margaret Murray um, espousing a sort of a stone tape theory, you know, the idea that you know, energy of high emotion or violent acts or, or extreme feelings can leave some kind of imprint on the landscape. And, and the usual version of this, and of course we get the terminology from the work of Nigel Neal in the 1970s, though the idea is earlier, um, the usual take is that the energy or the ghost is recorded through rock or stone or some sort of hard surface that is in the landscape. Here she's uh, kind of working on a, on a spin-off idea here that it's it's dust of all things. So I, I was truly fascinated to find this in, in a book which is otherwise kind of just goes over the usual ghost stories that you'd expect somebody to write about in the mid-20th century, although there, there's a few interesting bits which I might dip into in future episodes. But I'm going to leave it there. That is our Ghostly Halloween episode. Hopefully you're enjoying this most uh, spooky of seasons yourself. Uh, please do, if you're feeling better than me, uh, take a comfortable seat and enjoy a fine beverage as we ride out into that good night. So until next time, folks, as always, stay safe and thanks for listening. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. Of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a box.